This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. If you haven't heard about the Early Mobility Conference in Orlando, Florida on April 14th through 16th, you have to check it out. This will be my third time going and I am always amazed by the incredible collaboration and hands-on education provided. You will learn from some of the most expert pioneers such as Heidi Ingle, Christiane Perme, Polly Bailey, Jim Jackson, etc. This is for nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, respiratory therapists, physicians, APPs, speech-language pathologists, everyone. We'll be doing simulation training with every discipline together to practice the real teamwork and logistics behind early mobility with real people and real equipment. There are presentations, but so much of this is discussion, practice, and application. It is so inspiring to be surrounded by fellow revolutionists that get it and share their experiences and ideas. This is the kind of conference you'll walk away with tools, ideas, insights, and inspiration that will drastically impact your very next shift. Hospital management, don't miss the opportunity to send someone from each discipline of your hospital so that they can come back prepared to lead your team in mastering the ABCDEF bundle. I'll be there helping run the ICU simulation trainings and would love to see you there. Go to the website www.earlymobility.com to learn more and register for the conference. This episode, I'm bringing Dr. Reavy from episode 160 to talk about the big controversy over antipsychotics in the ICU. Dr. Reavy, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. You were on our podcast a couple of episodes ago, and there was just so much more to talk about, especially to learn from with you. Do you mind introducing yourself again to us? Yes, happy to. Thank you for having me back. So my name is Marie Reavy, and I'm a consult psychiatrist at a hospital in Ohio. Um, we have about a 24-bed medical ICU, as well as about a 12-bed surgical ICU that we cover. And I try to help the ICU team as much as possible with um, everything ICU collaborative liberation implementation. Perfect. And I wanted to ask a little bit of a follow-up from our last episode, because we talked about psychiatrists in the ICU. Um, I have been working with a trauma ICU that has a lot of need for psych inpatient psych support, and mm -hmm. they just have said that they do not have it, that the mm -hmm. psychiatrist will come by and say, well, let me know when they're extubated and, and walk away. What advice before we move on to our next topic, but what advice would you give to an ICU that's not feeling like they have um, good psych support? Yeah, that's really a tough one. And I, I'm sure that's the case in a lot of places. Like I said, we are trying to educate psychiatrists actually about how they can be more helpful in the ICU, even, you know, whether or not the patient can talk um, and trying to put out some educational materials for psychiatrists in that regard. That's a, that's a tough one. They would have to, you know, we could consider maybe linking to this episode or something, some basic, um, resources on psychopharmacology, things like that. I can refer to, you know, we could give, I'm expecting an article to come out in Psychiatric Times um, pretty soon that I was an author of several authors on that's describing how psychiatrists can be helpful in the ICU for a psychiatry readership. Maybe they could pass that along to their psychiatry colleagues, um, something like that. You have to try to get the word out more that that psychiatrists can be helpful because that is a barrier. Maybe also kind of like trying to be real specific about the question that they want answered, maybe acknowledging that to the psychiatrist that they're asking to help them that, you know, like, yeah, I know, I, I know they can't talk and all that, but can you at least sort of take a look at their medications and see if, if you could be helpful with agitation or they're withdrawing from this substance, you know, maybe trying to be as like specific as possible would help the psychiatrist see if there's something they could do despite not being able to do like a standard interview. Okay, perfect. And we'll link 
into the past episode with you, into this episode, all citations that um, you're willing to share that they could pass on to their psychiatrists. Okay. Now, this episode, I wanted to really pick your brain about your thoughts and the research behind antipsychotics in the ICU, because this has been a hot topic. Um, I've used them sparsely. Um, mm -hmm. And I think they do have a place in the ICU. I've also seen teams using them almost to replace continuous sedation. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've seen oh, Seroquel 200, BID, TID, with the objective to keep them comatose. So we've had conflicting research come out about antipsychotics. And so there's been a lot in the delirium world, in the critical care world about don't use them, use them. Let's clear mm -hmm. the air. What are your thoughts? <laughs> So I think antipsychotics are vastly misunderstood and, you know, the intensivists that I work with will actually say that they really appreciate my help because they don't know a whole lot about antipsychotics. And that's a little bit like what we talked about last time that everything's so siloed anymore. You know, I could say to the intensivist, well, I know a little bit about breathing treatments like albuterol is one of them. Right. But I certainly don't know the panoply of different things we give, we give people to help their lungs out. And similarly, I think it's helpful, like we were just discussing to have somebody a little more familiar with antipsychotics because they do have some differences between all of them. They do have some different roles. We do have to watch out for some side effects and things like that. So it can, uh, they can be a little tricky, but overall, especially when we're comparing them to, um, you know, continuous sedative infusions, like we talked about last time, their side effect profile is just much, much preferred. And I find in talking to nurses, other physicians, and of course, patients who take them that a lot of their fears about antipsychotics are really coming from their own beliefs or myths or something along those lines and not from the actual understanding of the pharmacology of the medicines themselves. So antipsychotics have been around for a long, long time. Haldol is the prototypical antipsychotics been around since like 1954 or something like that. So we have a ton of experience with Haldol in all kinds of, of settings, including it being the most common one used uh, for delirium. And I think a lot of that has to do with Haldol being really the only one available in IV formulation. And so that makes it um, extremely convenient to use in this population, right? Uh, but there, again, like Haldol, and, and some of it is, has to do with the field of psychiatry itself. It has to do with the whole market for antipsychotics being very influenced by drug companies for a long period of time when the newer second generation ones came out. Haldol can be vilified somewhat um, related to those things. And so we really have to get back to the truth about Haldol. There was a very helpful review a paper published in Psychosomatics in 2020 on IV Haldol by the consult psychiatry group at Mass General, headed by Dr. Scott Beach. And um, it's a great review about everything ever wanted to know about IV Haldol really um, pulls apart like the myths and beliefs versus the fact, like the fact and fiction uh, type difference there. And so we could link that when I, I find that paper to be extremely helpful for anybody who uses IV Haldol to understand really what are the risks, really what are the benefits. Um, and then I the second- one two to understand what are the indications? So when you say it's been used for delirium, I think there was the belief in the past that antipsychotics could help treat delirium. But, but does it, are we managing the condition or the symptoms? What are your thoughts? Correct. So we don't have any evidence that Haldol or any other antipsychotic treats delirium, um, at least a preponderance of evidence, delirium itself as an entity. Like we have some evidence that physical and occupational therapy sessions can, can cut delirium rates in half, like family presence can cut delirium rates in half, like the ADF bundle overall can cut delirium rates in half. So when we're talking about antipsychotics, we have to be sure we're using them for the right indication. And the mountain of evidence that we have related to antipsychotics like Haldol and the newer ones that I was referencing before, it talks about it treating perceptual disturbances, which we know are very common in delirium, right? So hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, specifically all the anxiety and agitation and kind of combativeness, even that can come from having those symptoms and um, just agitation in general, agitation from all cause. So if you look at traumatic brain injury literature, 
If you look at other neurologic literature, both acute and chronic psychiatric disorders and delirium, uh, it can definitely, you know, the research on delirium, the antipsychotics definitely help agitation. And so we're looking at treating those specific symptoms that a patient who has delirium is suffering from. And then we would have reason to use the antipsychotics and believe that they would help the situation. So more specifically, hyperactive delirium. Yes, those things would most commonly occur in hyperactive delirium. You could have delusions, paranoia, hallucinations in hypoactive delirium, and the patient just not really acting out on that too much. That can be difficult to parse out. You know, sometimes we can look for subtle things on mental status exam that might suggest that they're responding to internal stimuli, as we say, things like that. Um, but that's definitely a harder call. Hypoactive, or I'm sorry, hyperactive delirium would have a lot more clear indication for antipsychotic. Um, and and we're using it to manage their their agitation but also help them really be more comfortable because we're addressing the root cause of their agitation which is the hallucinations the delusions things like that but at the same time it's from a bedside provider perspective you know as a nurse I like that it's going to take them maybe from a RASF plus three down to a RASF plus one or zero right like we're having we're getting a little bit of a chemical restraint benefit right helping them stay safer, not trying to climb out of bed, be combative, things like that. Um, and I think that's, we usually respond to the hyperactive delirium, that kind of agitation with more sedation. Mm-hmm. And we're using sometimes Ativan pushes if they're not intubated. Um, and so the risk versus benefit is drastically mm-hmm. different. So not that antipsychotics are going to treat and resolve the delirium, but it's going to really address some, some of the symptoms, but come with a lower rate of adverse events, right? Or consequences. Yes, that's what I would say. So especially when compared with those other choices like sedatives and such that are um, deliriogenic. So Haldol and the antipsychotics are not sedatives. Um, I always give the example, you know, working on an inpatient psychiatry unit where we don't have delirious patients, if we can help it. We do have psychotic agitated patients and such who need medications to help them with those symptoms at times. We almost always combine the antipsychotic with a benzo because the antipsychotics are not very sedating in and of themselves. And we need actually on inpatient psychiatry, the extra sedation of the of the benzo in combination with it or in the emergency room sometimes. So especially certain ones like Haldol, Haloperidol or Risperidone, those really do not have a whole lot of sedation associated with it. They're described as being calming, but not sedating. Uh, So that's one benefit of the side effect and kind of how they're different from sedatives. Um, The other major benefits to using antipsychotics for those symptoms that you described, you know, how we look at agitation, right? People um, trying to exit the bed, falling out of bed, hitting people, um, pulling at lines and tubes, dislodging devices, generally not able to like participate in care. They're not taking their medications. They're not allowing lab draws. They're not, you know, they're just generally interfering with what we're trying to do to help them. Um, the antipsychotics do not cause respiratory depression. They do not, in general, affect vital signs. So like all the concerns with bradycardia and hypotension and things like that that we have with sedatives, those are just not going to happen, especially with particular choices of antipsychotics. Um, and they don't cause delirium. <laughs> so, you know, they, they aren't going to make the brain worse in that regard. The side effects of antipsychotics that we worry about in the world of psychiatry are actually longer term ones for the most part. And so we're looking at short term, very temporary use of the antipsychotics for these specific symptoms in delirious patients. The the side effects that we worry about with antipsychotics, those are generally with longer term use, like schizophrenic patients who need to be on antipsychotics for their lifetime. That's where we get into looking at, you know, weight gain, blood sugar, discontrol, other elements of metabolic syndrome. Those aren't going to happen short term in the ICU. Uh, And similarly, with extrapyramidal symptoms or movement disorders, those, especially the most feared one, you know, tardive dyskinesia. Tardive means delayed. It means longer term use. So that's not something we worry about in long, in the short term. You can have a few of the EPS syndromes like dystonia, which is like a 
acute muscle contraction in different parts of the body that can be a little bit painful. You can look at Parkinsonian type symptoms. Those could occur. Uh, these are all extremely rare, though, in my experience, treating delirious patients with antipsychotics every day, uh, or I should say agitated delirious patients with antipsychotics every day, um, run into those things maybe a handful of times. Uh, it's, a, it's very rare to, to have those. So really the short-term um, side effects that we would worry about are, are very minimal. The critical care literature would agree with that, I think, because they generally point out that the main problem with antipsychotic use in delirium is that people get started on them and then not taken back off of them, right? And so they leave the hospital on antipsychotics that they probably don't need over the long term. And you might have longer term side effect risk associated with that. And it seems like, it seems like though they're not necessarily sedatives, that sometimes they're prescribed at such high rates because they're trying to replace the sedatives. They're trying to bridge from IV sedation to, like I said, high dose Seroquel, for example, so that mm -hmm. they can just get them to LTAC. Yeah. And so it's looking at what are the goals of our care? Is this to help them be more calm and compliant so that they can participate in occupational physical therapy so they can mobilize so that they can communicate so we can actually treat their delirium? Or is it to try to get them to stay comatose, not moving, not arousing? What are the goals? Right. So we always want to keep those goals in mind, like SCCM laid out in its ICU collaboration literature, right? For the awake, communicative, participatory patient who can verbalize needs to us, you know, that's always the goal. And a lot of times I have to remind patients and families that that's the goal. Some of them get a little freaked out when the psychiatrist walks into the room and I have to explain what I'm there for exactly. Uh, and, and review of those goals so we know we're all on the same page is very important. Um, so yeah, I don't, I definitely do not recommend antipsychotics as a replacement for sedatives. I do often get consulted or like I mentioned last time, I'll sometimes consult myself uh, for my own team um, for patients who are CAM positive and are on various sedative infusions. And maybe we're trying, you know, what the report usually is from the nurses that we're trying to have a spontaneous awakening trial, or we're trying to taper off these sedatives and we're running into agitation of however we're going to define that, right? Plus three plus four is, is what we have normally, but sometimes we're really just meaning they're kind of restless and wiggly in bed. And so we do have to differentiate there. Um, but, you know, given the, the difference in the side effect and risk profiles of continuing for days on these IV sedatives versus doses of the antipsychotic. Um, if the nurse is reporting that there's been agitation in the last few hours when I've tried to turn down these sedatives, and he or she can describe some version of that being, you know, exiting from the bed, taking a swing at things, pulling at stuff, going for their tube or something like that, um, then I feel justified that, yes, toward the goal of, of getting these sedatives, let's cover for that agitation symptom that we saw because delirium is tricky. It fluctuates, right? It's like delirious patients can look one way at an 8 a.m. assessment for a nurse. And then when I come around at like 10, they're like RAS negative four. And I'm trying to believe the nurse that they were agitated. A few, you know, it's like we all see a different picture depending on when we pop in to see these delirious patients too. Okay. So taking the report into account, um, we may choose to start like an IV Haldol PRN push order if there's been a report of agitation with trying to remove the sedative as long as their QTC is okay, which is the other major, um, you know, side effect or sort of like um, parameter that we worry about related to antipsychotics. We can get into that, you know, specifically a little bit too, if you'd like, but yeah, it's a little bit for um, the complaint of whatever form of agitation that was verbalized at rounds, what happened when I tried to turn the sedative down. And it is a little bit like we talked about last time for almost for the staff benefit, right? That there's something else there. So I can go ahead and get these sedatives off because there are other ways to treat. They're giving me other ways to treat the symptoms that I was reporting to them earlier. So that helps. I find that helps staff like turn turn down those sedatives a little bit more rapidly if we have something else available. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something really um, vulnerable and scary about saying just turn it off 
as a provider yeah. just to show up and say, turn it off. And then we walk away and then they're left with this patient that's going to suddenly emerge really agitated and thrashing. Um, I appreciate that you, you mentioned the variation in, in definitions of agitation. Mm-hmm. I, I also see agitation as a RASA plus three or plus four, but I also appreciate that we oftentimes use the word agitation to describe a RASA plus one or plus two. And I think intervention is absolutely needed when there's a plus three or plus four. It's a risk. It's a danger. You have to have something on hand to um, avoid the risks of harm to the staff or harm to the patient. So I I like that idea of having something IV, quick acting, but Mm -hmm. also not continuous. Mm -hmm. Um, Right not a long-term plan, but to say, how are we going to mitigate the risks while we figure out what they need and, and utilize all the other tools that we have, like communication and family and um, mobility. But when right now, when we just resume sedation, we take away all those tools. Yes. If the real cause of that agitation was delirium, now we've resumed the very thing that caused it. Right. One of the main things to, to cause it. So that makes a lot more sense to give something that would manage the symptoms without exacerbating the condition. Right. And without um, doing anything possible related to their respiratory status either, which is usually, you know, like the most common thing that people are in the ICUs for. Because the main cause of failed breathing trials is sedation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. I have asked our nurses and I haven't really gotten a clear answer of like, which I also don't see in the collaboration literature uh, about like when you do a spontaneous awakening trial, you know, or you try to turn down the sedative, like how long are you supposed to try to help the patient through it before um, you resort to either turning the sedation back on at half dose in the case of spontaneous awakening trial or giving another medication. I have a much lower threshold for going ahead and giving another medication like IV Haldol if their QTC is okay in that scenario, because it's, we're still kind of going, it's helping us kind of go toward our goal of getting the sedation off. Um, But it's hard. It varies with nurses. Like I've heard you describe the spontaneous awakening trial, like watch for their arm to move and then turn it back on. (laughs) Or Uh, yeah, another nurse is on here um, talking about, when she was training into the ICU, she didn't even realize they were doing an awakening trial. So when she asked the nurse, when are we doing the SAT? She said, oh, we already did it. Remember, he, he breathed five times above the vent and that was it. Right. But then also it's, it's hard because if you have another patient that you're managing, you turn sedation off. You don't know necessarily depending on the type of sedation and the body habit is and how long they've been sedated. You don't know when they're actually going to be desedated. Exactly. And so it's hard as a nurse to turn it off and maybe they're a bariatric patient patient that's been a propofol. Are they going to suddenly be on the ceiling in 30 seconds or in Mm -hmm. two weeks? You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's right. The longer, the longer they're on it, that's what I tried to emphasize to the team here. You know, we, we will have a lot more luck getting this off if we follow Dr. Ely's advice of like, every time the sun rises, we have to be asking these questions of does the patient still need all these things? Not five to seven days later, because then we're, we are full of it, all of it, the fentanyl, the propofol, we have a huge reservoir of it in our system and it's completely, um, all bets are off as far as when we're going to see this actually exit their system. Right. And just because you're giving an IV push of Haldol doesn't mean that you're resuming sedation it's not you're still progressing forward you're still allowing the body to metabolize all those other things out without um prolonging time on the ventilator yeah and so that's uh i think of an important differentiation with antipsychotics is i really try to be careful about my language with the team that these are not sedatives right these are medications that can calm agitation and treat perceptual disturbances. And uh, those are very uncomfortable for the patient. So we give this medication to help them through that, but we're still proceeding with our goal of removing the sedation and progressing toward extubation. You know, like I said last time, we try to get the brain and the lungs to the point of being able to extubate this patient at the same time. And uh, yeah, the, the antipsychotics will not adversely affect spontaneous breathing trials for sure. I have to ask too, I interviewed Dr. Paul Wishmeyer, who mm-hmm. he himself had been a patient and he had delirium um, at one point, I mean, at many points actually, but um, one time he, when he was young, he received Haldol 
Uh-huh. And he said it was like being pushed. He said he experienced. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. being pushed off a higher level and falling into glass and shattering glass. How common is that experience with Haldol? Because that made me hesitate. That made me worry that we were exacerbating delirium or delusions or, or giving them worse experiences. Yeah. So I listened to that episode. It was very fascinating. And I've heard some other folks uh, on different, you know, various podcasts in this realm kind of um, either lump Haldol in with other sedatives or explain this whole complicated situation with all these different medications on board and then say, but I think it was the Haldol that did that. And it's like, well, how are you differentiating from all this other stuff uh, that was going on at the same time? So what I usually tell patients, because I I hear and see that a lot. This is one of those situations, like if I had a nickel for every time, this came up. Uh, and it's not that this is a common reaction. It's, it's, it's a common misunderstanding, in my opinion, of what's going on at the time. So um, we said that the antipsychotics don't treat delirium, right? They treat some of the symptoms of delirium. So when we give a delirious patient a dose of an antipsychotic for whatever indication we have to do that, the delirium is still going on. And so what their symptoms that they're experiencing in the wake of giving that antipsychotic that are basically pharmacologically impossible to have been caused by that antipsychotic, we that's from the delirium itself ongoing. So I have patients all the time. I was just talking today. I mean, this happens every day. I was just talking today to a wife of a patient, cancer patient who's been struggling with delirium for a long time. He's not in the ICU, thankfully, but the same principle applies, you know, and he's experiencing a lot of what in dementia we call sundowning, which is where their sleep-wake cycle is reversed and they suddenly get restless and energized and kind of all over the place in the evening into the into the nighttime, right? And he gets his H, his bedtime Risperdal dose right in the middle of that happening. It's extremely low ginger dose of risper and um the you know the wife is interpreting that the risperdal is causing this because he gets the risperdal dose and then this is happening and it's like but actually this would be happening if we didn't give the risperdal dose too right because this is his delirium and it kicks up around night you know evening into nighttime for a lot of people and so it's temporally connected Yes, he got the risperdal dose. He probably got, also got like six other medications at bedtime that we're not pinpointing is the one that causes him, you know, to be restless after that. So that's a little bit of an example of our beliefs about the medication. Not a, Maybe it's not enough medicine to treat his uh, agitation that's happening in the evening and actually need to increase the dose of it a little bit. But I can be pretty pharmacologically confident that the risperdal is not causing that to happen. That's the delirium ongoing. And similarly for Dr. Wishmeyer, that's what I probably would respond to him is that he may have temporarily around there gotten a dose of Haldol and then had that experience afterwards. I don't question that that's what he what he experienced, but I would question that that effect was directly from the Haldol versus the ongoing delirium itself that, like we said, comes and goes, fluctuates up and down different times of day, hard to really um, pinpoint that. So I don't see it from a cause effect uh, standpoint. It's usually the ongoing delirium. The other thing that where this uh, exemplifies itself is, you know, delirium can fluctuate also between hyperactive and hypoactive, right? And so patients can be 
agitated, agitated, agitated all night. I come in in the morning, they're somnolent and, um, the nurse will have held the morning risperdal dose because, or, or the nurse gave the morning risperdal dose. Now the patient's somnolent. And so they've held it and they're not going to give any more antipsychotic because it knocked them out. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't knock people out though, any more than the antibiotic that you gave them knocks people out. Cause you also gave that at nine o'clock this morning, but we don't think that caused um, them to be knocked out, you know? So this is the fluctuating delirium. It can fluctuate down into hypoactive delirium, which can actually for some people be basically unresponsiveness and coma. That just means that their delirium fluctuated down there. It doesn't mean that the risperdal sent them down there. Uh, and so we, we're seeing the ongoing delirium. We need to continue to provide treatment for the delirium itself in the forms of that that we you know described. And also, if they continue to have some agitation, medication for that too. And how do you navigate when to give Zyprexa versus Risperidone versus Seroquel? Yeah. Lots of, lots of thoughts <laughs> say that when um, I'm rounding with the ICU and um, I have a patient where the nurse is giving a report of agitation or trying to get sedatives off or whatever, the first thing I do is look at their QTC. And if it is less than 500 and they have IV access, then I will give IV Haldol for sure, because it is the best tolerated um, medication. It's purely dopamine blocking. So it doesn't have anticholinergic effects. It's actually IV Haldol, interestingly enough, really doesn't have EPS associated with it. So it really doesn't have that side effect in that formulation. Um, it's safe in any kind of organ failure. So there's no dose adjustment based on whether the kidneys or liver functioning or not. Um, and it's not going to do anything to their respiratory drive. So it's extremely safe in an unknown patient as long as that QTC is below 500. Um, it's not very sedating though. So if I have a patient who's almost like purely hyperactive delirium or another scenario is if we have a agitated, anxious patient who's trying to tolerate BiPAP and things like that, and I actually want a little bit more sedation without having to give benzos, then I will go to, in the ICU, then I will go to either Seroquel or Zyprexa usually. And the difference there is that um, a couple of things. So Seroquel has a little bit more QTC prolongation risk with it. Zyprexa really doesn't have a whole lot of QTC prolongation risk. So that may be a differentiator. Um, they both have a fair amount of antihistamine and anticholinergic effect to them. So that's what's going to cause the sedation effect, like this, the uh, somnolence sort of effect. Uh, and that sometimes is a good thing in some of these agitated situations where we're trying to have people, right? Like that might be why we're, we would give somebody a benzo in that scenario. Dose, a dose, not an infusion. Um, to me, though, a benzo compared to the antipsychotics for that scenario, patients trying to tolerate BiPAP and is anxious. The antipsychotic uh, doesn't have any respiratory depression risk, and it doesn't have any literature that says, you know, every milligram of Ativan that you give, you have a 20% risk that your patient's going to be delirious the following day. So to me, it's a lot safer and most likely to be better tolerated to use some, a little bit of Seroquel or Zyprexa in that scenario. The other time that I use Zyprexa or Seroquel, again, mostly depending on the QTC, which one I'm going to pick, um, is at nighttime. So trying, if I have a, if I have an agitated person, like I had a patient in the emergency, or I'm sorry, in the ICU uh, earlier this week, who's like calling 911 at night. I don't even know how he was actually getting his phone to do that in his delirious state, but that was the report. So there was agitation and all this overnight. And so uh, given that his QTC was a little prolonged, we chose Zyprexa or Olanzapine, and we give like five or 10 milligrams of that at nighttime to treat the agitation pattern overnight that we're seeing that's very common with delirium, but it's a little bit more sedating than something like Haldol. So it's going to promote sleep at the same time without having to give other agents for sleep. So we're kind of accomplishing both of those things in one pill. So that's a little bit how I um, choose between the different ones. The other things that come in the ICU, right, are like um, if they have enteral access or not. So 
if you, if I have a patient, like a common corner I'll get into is I have a patient who is having some agitation. It, their QTC is 600 <laughs> and they uh, don't have any enteral access. And it's like, okay, so now what are we going to do with this person? And that's where I usually will go to intramuscular uh-huh. antipsychotic. Yep. So you have intramuscular Haldol. Same, you know, reasons I would pick that, uh, as as we already discussed. And then you have intramuscular olanzapine or Zyprexa in five or 10 milligram doses. So again, I can give that patient um, uh, 10 milligrams of Zyprexa at bedtime to help with sleep and overnight agitation in an IM formulation. Um, so that that helps a lot too. And then whenever they can take PO again, then we, you know, switch to pills because I don't really like sticking people like that if I can help it. But sometimes that's the only way. Right. Especially if you're in a, in a crisis. Right. So that's a difficult situation, even on the medical floor, not just in the ICU, but you have right. patients with actual agitation. The nurses have five other patients. Um, and yet when we give Ativan, we're just igniting this whole domino effect that that really is not beneficial to anybody i've had really good experiences with diprexa or seroquel at night um for the hyperactive delirious patients the ones that are just constantly going 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 but my but i always wondered i mean it makes us feel better it's definitely easier for the nurse but is that real restorative sleep Mm -hmm. yeah so the antipsychotics do not they do promote sleep real restorative sleep. So it's not going to be sleep disrupting like uh, benzodiazepines or alcohol is, for example, because that works the same way as benzodiazepines or some of the other sedatives that we know disrupt sleep. Presidex being the um, the uh, exception to that, right? So Presidex does promote restorative sleep or pretty natural sleep overnight. And so that's a that's a fair choice that sometimes I leave to the you know, ICU team in general, like we could use Presidex here, or we could use um, one of these antipsychotics here to help with sleep. They'll both, or to help with agitation, they will both preserve sleep. I like the, you know, studies that look at cycling Presidex overnight and then turning it down or off during the day. I haven't gotten my team here to really um, experiment with that one too much. And of course, the other tie uh, the other thing that Presidex does is tie you to the ICU. So sometimes we will opt for the antipsychotic choice because those can be used anywhere in the hospital, at least in our hospital. <laughs> but Presidex is in the ICU. And so um, if they're trying to get them out of the ICU and we're almost there, but we're having this agitation, then that's another nice um, place to use antipsychotics. And I do really see it as my responsibility as the consultant or the member of the team who's kind of... Um, suggesting their use in these appropriate scenarios and for these appropriate symptoms to follow the patient and be sure that I'm tapering them off the antipsychotic when they don't need it anymore either. Just like I would, just like we kind of promote, you know, to like, let's not use a sedative anymore when we need it, right? The same rule applies to antipsychotics. Being that hospitalization is so short and patients aren't given really a whole lot of time in a lot of cases in the hospital to totally convalesce from their illness. You know, they're sent to an acute rehab, they're sent to a nursing facility, they're sent home health. Um, We sometimes give a taper, we write for a taper of the antipsychotic for after discharge. So don't generally do not just say, okay, they're on, you know, held all five milligrams twice a day goodbye, like discharge on that. <laughs> I will write like, or we can, can keep with the Aldol twice a day for a week, let them settle back in at home. Um, then we can go down to five milligrams at bedtime for two weeks and stop something like that. So there's like a direction for how that's going to end, even if I'm not personally there at the time to you know make sure it ends. No, that's great. I think sometimes, especially during COVID, we had such large volumes leaving the hospital to these LTACs. They were so inundated. But so many of these patients that were having antipsychotics used as a transition, I think especially Seroquel because it is sedating. Yeah. High doses of Seroquel were being given. They're sent to the LTAC and they would stay on those doses for a long time. Like It just seemed like there was so much to manage in the LTAC that there wasn't a strong, reliable system to make sure that these medications were being reviewed, tapered, discontinued, reassessed. 
Um, yeah. And that that can really harm patients and they continue to be comatose, obtunded or lethargic in the LTAC where they're supposed to be rehabilitating. Yes. And so they're not really... really do them a disservice in the long run as well. Yeah. Seroquel, I think, came into a lot of favor as an antipsychotic based on John Devlin's study of it in 2010 that was published in Critical Care Medicine, which he will describe, or I've heard him describe on, I haven't talked to him myself, <laughs> but I've heard him describe on podcasts that um, he will he will say that, well, that was a pilot study that was only 36 patients that was adding Seroquel up to 200 milligrams twice a day. Uh, two patients who were receiving Haldol for whatever hyperactive symptoms of delirium they were having at the time. Uh, and it did show that pilot study did show benefit, including in reduction in severity and length of delirium course. So that really hasn't been reproduced in the way they have studied antipsychotics in the ICU for delirium as far as RCT goes since then. But his study did give some basis for that use. And I did, you know, when that came out in 2010, we did kind of adapt that to a little protocol of sorts of like this combination of Haldol and Seroquel, because those are very interesting opposite antipsychotics, really. They're both antipsychotics. They're both labeled as dopamine blockers. Haldol pretty much only blocks dopamine. Seroquel is very light on the dopamine receptor, actually. It doesn't do a whole lot of dopamine blocking. It has a lot of antihistamine, a lot of anticholinergic, a lot of serotonin action. It's a very mixed, um, low potency drug, which is where the high number of milligrams comes from. So we would do like uh, kind of riffing off his study. We would do, you know, like some Haldol dosing during the day, because of course it's calming, but not sedating. And then we would maybe use Seroquel, a bedtime dose of Seroquel, plus maybe one other rescue dose of Seroquel available during the day for high anxiety or agitation. So that combination, even though in the rest of psychiatry, like treating schizophrenic patients, I tend to not use combinations of antipsychotics like that. We try to do monotherapy. Um, sometimes these very opposite antipsychotics can help, can work in a combination. And so I think that's where Seroquel got a lot of traction for use in the ICU was from that 2010 study. In my experience, though, it's not a, it's not the most ideal one <laughs> to pick. It's better than Ziprazidone. So if we talk about the Mind USA study from 2018, we can talk about Ziprazidone a little bit because that's at the bottom of the list as far as helpful antipsychotics, I think. But um, Seroquel does have that a little bit more QTC prolongation. It is less dopamine blocking and has all those other kind of messy receptor interactions that cause a lot of side effects with it. Um, and so I find it hard to use as monotherapy to help with delirium because I'm, I'm not really getting that dopamine blockade. I do like it combined with a strong dopamine blocker to help with that, you know, um, I guess you'd have to say sedating or sometimes we use the term soporific sort of effect, like helping with sleep at night, but in my mind, less, um, dangerous or egregious than like giving a patient, you know, Benadryl or a Benzo or something to help us sleep at night. And I guess you're looking at it from an ADF bundle perspective where you're yes. wanting patients to be awake, communicative, mobile. I think sometimes we're giving these medications with the perspective of the more traditional approach to have them more comatose, um, lifeless, just laying in bed, not bothering anybody. Um, so I think management depends on what our goals of care are and then the benefit is um, engaged accordingly because I think people have really liked high doses of Seroquel because it is sedating but is that our goal to sedate them yes correct and I would never give I don't recommend antipsychotics just for delirium right across the board like we're giving it for those specific um, symptoms that we talked about and I will take a nurse report in recent hours, even if I'm not seeing it myself when I go to look at the patient, because delirium does fluctuate like that. Um, and so I think that's important to take everybody's experiences with the patient into consideration. But we are doing it for those specific symptoms, not for delirium itself. And so in general, a hypoactive delirious patient is not going to receive antipsychotics because there's no reason to think that's going to do anything unless you have that um, kind of rare hypo 
active delirium patient who is either able to report to you that they're having some paranoia, that they're seeing, you know, blood come down the walls or snakes on the floor or something like that. Um, or they're awake 24 seven and having a lot of trouble sleeping. You know, there are some other choices for sleep that we could consider that aren't antipsychotics. Uh, but something like that, you know, otherwise hypoactive delirium by itself is not really going to be benefited very much by a, by an antipsychotic. Excellent. And I, I just love the idea of having more things to help keep patients and clinicians safe, but not um, take away the opportunity to actually treat the delirium with sleep, family, mobility. And so right. I think that, that is our goal to help patients access those tools. Then we see these kind of interventions as part of giving them access instead of depriving them with sedation. But also if a patient's a RASA plus three or plus four, you also can't communicate with them, mobilize them. They can't really connect with their families because they're just levitating off the bed. So yeah. finding the middle ground, I think um, we, maybe some people that have heard me talk think that this is a no sedation, non-pharmacological, 100% all the way approach. And it absolutely is not. It's figuring out what tools do we have accessible? What are the pros and cons? What are the risks associated with these interventions? And how do we safely utilize them um, to optimize the outcomes of our patients? I love that we're looking at antipsychotics as a very temporary, useful tool, but also making sure that we have a way to get them off down the road too. Right. Yes. So they're definitely a tool in our toolbox and they serve a purpose and they have a very long, well-established history of treating certain symptoms that do happen in, in delirium and in ICU patients uh, across the board. And we do use them in psychiatry, I would say, you know, off-label a lot for anxiety. Anxiety is a very frequent, I say, phenotype of delirium, right? If you're confused, if you're having some paranoid thoughts that maybe you're not directly verbalizing to people or whatever, we're going to see anxiety as a result of that. And antipsychotics are very, you know, very effective at calming that down, again, without a lot of the other side effects that come along with the other choices of medications when we actually really look at the pharmacology of these different agent choices. Well, this has been so helpful to have another perspective on how to manage delirium, even if this doesn't treat delirium, it can help us manage it and allow us to treat it. Anything else you would add? I just was like what you were saying before about, um, you know, that we're not, we're not all one or the other, right? <laughs> we're not like, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm not all medication. Um, and you're not anti-medication. Um, I always start my notes, which the folks around here seem to appreciate, but when I get to the recommendation sections of my notes, which are probably a little wordier than they have to be, I do start out with like, we need to avoid benzos, anticholinergics and unnecessary opiates. Um, we need to uh, do all these non-pharmacologic interventions that have been proven to decrease delirium, like Sharon Enyway's work from 1999. And I list them all out about the blinds, the eyeglasses, the you know early mobility, the um, catheters, the everything, constipation, et cetera, et cetera. Like all those other things that we need to fix to be sure the patient's comfortable. Um, and I do also have a little bit of homage to Dr. Ely's um, Dr. Dre mnemonic, you know, about like, have we removed the drugs? Like I mentioned, you know, are we working toward disease removal and are we doing these things in the environment? Those are the important things for treating delirium. Um, if there's no contraindication to it, is this patient working with PTOT? Because that's been demonstrated in the literature to cut delirium in half. <laughs> and I always personally um, when I'm seeing these patients and their families, if there's family at the bedside of a delirious patient in the ICU or anywhere in the hospital, I always personally say to the family, thank you for being here because you are a treatment. I think a lot of families have a lot of anxiety that they're in the way, you know, they're kind of, you know, hanging out when they don't really need to be there or whatever. I tell them that, you know, obviously you can't be here 24 seven, you have other things in life, but when you are here, it's very helpful for treating this a scary condition of delirium because no, they're loved our medicine. Yes, they are. Their loved one looks totally different. A lot of times they're worried it's a permanent state and they're going to be there forever. So just those few minutes of chatting with the family and saying, you know, thank you for being here. It's really helping. We know from the science that this really helps um, get their brain back online. And then I go into some of the 
pharmacology recommendations, a lot of which can be, you know, stop this, stop that, stop that. <laughs> then we'll add a little bit of this, uh, you know, on for sleep or for calming during the day or whatever. I do recommend uh, a lot of melatonin. There is um, some studies out there pointing to its potential helpfulness in cutting down delirium, although a that hasn't been well replicated and there isn't a specific mechanism of action that's been um, identified for that. The 2018 PADIS guidelines were um, mentioned to that, but they didn't put that in there as like a across the board recommendation that everybody should have. If it's appropriate for the patient and they're having trouble with that sleep-wake cycle, I will suggest that. Um, trazodone is another medicine that is an old, old antidepressant that helps with sleep in small doses and is quite benign as far as sleep medicines go. Um, it has, uh, doesn't have like the EPS, EPS risk and things like that, that antipsychotics do. So sometimes if we're really only having tr uh, sleep trouble, um, I might recommend small doses of trazodone to see if that helps. So there are some varied. I also, also almost always try to mention in there like multimodal pain control, right? Do we have this patient on Tylenol if it's appropriate? Um, are they supposed to be on uh, gabapentin at home and we're not giving it to them here and their kidney function is fine. So can we restart that? You know, uh, these, these other types of coming at it from all directions. So my notes, I feel like really try to emphasize this well-rounded approach the antipsychotic is kind of like one line in there if it's going to be helpful, but all these things are required for treating delirium, which is why I find myself talking about ICU liberation all the time, right? Because antipsychotics are such a small piece of it. They can be extremely helpful in the right setting with the right patient for the right reason, but I'm not going to treat delirium with antipsychotics. I'm not going to resolve all these delirium cases. We have to be coming at these patients to help them from the ICU liberation collaborative ADF bundle viewpoint on how to get this done for this person's brain and body. This has been so helpful. I think people are going to love this really resonate with this because I think there's been, as we can both appreciate a lot of misunderstanding about antipsychotics about delirium in general. I think you've done such a great job of clearing the air. All your citations that you've mentioned, I will include in the episode transcript. Um, and anything else you want to share with everyone will include on the website. Okay, perfect. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com. <laughs>